Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am down in South Beach at the iConnections Global Alternatives Conference. Yesterday on stage, I had two great conversations with VCs that you know and probably love. The first with Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital. The second with Chamath Palihapitiya of Social Capital. We covered a wide range of issues basically how these guys are deploying capital right now, some tech trends they're really excited about, and if and when we are going to come out of this VC tech winner that we might be in. So stick around for both of those conversations. Great to be here at the iConnections Global Alternatives Conference. Thanks for being at this. Um, this is my good friend, Rick Heitzman. He's the founder and CEO of First Mark Capital. This is one of the New York City VC OGs. <laughs> Welcome, Rick. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone from iConnection for having me. And, you know, at this point in the cycle, it's really interesting conversation to have of what we're seeing in a very different world from what you just heard about, but in venture capital and that facet of the private market. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, listen, that was a really great conversation we just listened to here. I mean, he's co-host of a podcast that he and I do together. It's called OK Computer. And we've been talking about some of the themes over the last year and a half as some things have been kind of coming unwound in the private um, investment world a little bit. And a lot of it has to do with the fact of we're all dealing with this kind of rising rate environment and the other side of the pandemic and some of the dislocations that we saw because of that. Um, and so we really want to start out talking about, again, you know, we're calling this panel a reckoning for poor due diligence. Rick and I had a podcast, I think it was almost a year ago, we were talking about like this kind of the NASDAQ had just kind of topped out. People didn't know it was the top. You never know it's the top when it's the top, right? But the fact is that the Fed was saying that they're going to raise interest rates aggressively to tamp down or battle inflation. And nobody knew how long and how high they would go. And Rick's point was like, oh, baby, watch out, because there was a lot of really bad due diligence in the private sectors and the lag. So let's talk about that, the lag that you see from, and you've been doing this now over multiple cycles. What is the lag from, from public markets to private markets? And then, you know, it's that Buffett conversation or that comment about when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked sort of thing. That's exactly true. So, you know, as we've talked about on OK Computer, what we saw was, you know, even 18 months ago that uh, things were moving very fast with very light due diligence and very large checks at probably valuations that were unsustainable. And for those of us who had seen cycles, that made us very scared. You know, there, there was probably folks who were feeling uh, FOMO or fear of missing out when things were moving that quickly. You know, we probably took to quote Buffett again, you know, when other people are greedy, be scared. And they felt like there was a lot of greed and that made us very scared. And we said, hey, our normal process of 
deep diligence, getting to know the founders, understanding our process, and running a thoughtful way to invest, you know, is gonna work, it's gonna work in the long term, and therefore, uh, hopefully we could avoid some of these disasters. But, you know, we said that, we saw that happen, and then to answer the second part of your question, and then even in the, as the public markets turned, and the public markets turned probably in uh, October, November, December, of 2020, uh, 2021, and being in New York, you know, I think the conversation might be different than being in Silicon Valley. You're you're much closer to the to the uh, to the financial markets. You have a lot of friends who are deep in the financial markets, and therefore you have the ability to kind of be more market aware. We saw a lot more fear, and a lot more presence, and a lot more concern over rising interest rates than what maybe some of our colleagues that we served on boards with as venture capitalists saw. Uh, and we said, hey, this is gonna happen, and it's not gonna be short term. This is gonna be a long arc process, and we think it's gonna take two to three quarters, because that's what we had seen historically for you know, the news on Wall Street to get to the boardrooms of uh, a lot of earlier stage venture capital companies. And so that lag we were gonna see, and, and yeah, I think we saw that of what well, we saw a market cracking on the public side in October due, due to largely interest rate uh, speculation that you, know, you really were seeing a kind of a, a bottoming out in probably Q2 or over the summer of 2022, that memo uh, filtered through the system. On the flip side though, you know, I, I think the private market is gonna lag the public market leading us out. And you know, I think yep. then we're gonna have to turn to guys like Dan who really understand that and trying to figure out, therefore, where do we go from yeah, here? Yeah, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting, you know, you, you've been on this, this Midas uh, list. You guys are very early stage, you're seed stage, and so you were on the board of, of, of Pinterest. You were the first institutional money there. You saw something about DraftKings. You had a path forward. It wasn't just fantasy, it was towards, you know, sports betting. Talk to us a little bit, again, going back to business model, and I think that's a big part of your theme as it relates to due diligence. You know, those business models were exposed after years of kind of VC, um, I guess you would call subsidizing those yes. models for consumers. So let's talk a little bit about that and why were you able to look at a Pinterest or a DraftKings or a Shopify or an Airbnb yep. early on? How much did it have to do with just you know an easy money environment or versus really kind of getting to know what the business model was? And was it gonna be able to kind of deal with a changing economic environment? I think that's a really big part of it because that's when this thing started to turn when interest rates started going up last year. So, you know, as we think about doing diligence, you know, you're not only looking at the founders and doing reference checks and background screens on them, but you're thinking holistically more about the market. And one of the things we think about is what's the end state business model of this business and do the founders understand where they need to go? And then just to contrast some of the things that you just said, Dan, if you look at Airbnb and what's the end state business model there, they're incremental, each additional dollar of revenue drives about 75% incremental dollars of cash flow. So they're driving meaningful, they did over a billion dollars of EBITDA in the third quarter of last year. We invested when the model was completely upside down and they were growing, they were investing in both the fixed costs as well as market expansion. But we were able to see know, five, seven years ago when we first invested, hey, when this business expands, 
due to the nature of the marketplace, due to the capital efficiency of, of being virtual and you know, being a, a lodging company that doesn't own anything, that that's going to be a great business model over time and will generate material earnings and cash flow. Uh, conversely, we didn't get involved in any of the quick service um, delivery companies where we said, well, all right, we understand you're investing now and you're losing a massive amount of money to give somebody uh, a pint of Ben & Jerry's ice cream that they could buy at the store for $5 and giving it to them for $4 to be able to do it, which didn't make a tremendous amount of sense to us, but we, we listened to that part of the conversation. But you know, what's your end state if you still have to go to the store buy the ice cream, have a human being, take that ice cream, get it on a bike, drive it to someone's house, that, you know, and what does that mean for the consumer at a, you know, in order to drive a 50 plus percent margin business when you're doubling prices, and what does that mean when that venture subsidy goes away, and what does your business look like? Shockingly, even some of the founders hadn't really thought through that because it was pretty easy to raise money from people who weren't asking the questions, but what we saw was, you know, the best founders are the most thoughtful about not only where their business is, but where their business is going. And you look at like a Chesky or a Nate from Airbnb, and they have been able to lay out that whole path and where exactly they were going, as opposed to folks who were dismissing diligence in, in the search for easy money that could provide the supplement. You know, it's funny when you think about some of the companies you just named and some of the businesses and how they were affected over the last few years, just obviously first by the pandemic, you think about an Airbnb, we know what happened to their revenue during that, not their fault there, but if you have the wrong business model and you, yes. you know what I mean, like it's that much harder to come out of this other thing and take advantage of maybe some of the new trends that exist. Talk to us a little bit about like some of these founders that you invested in when they were, you know, obviously seed yeah. and pre-series A, and the period in time which they have just gone through, some of these guys became wartime generals, right? Yes. Like, like, are we likely to see some of these guys, are they the next Sundar Pachais and Satya Nadellas? Are we, is there a crop that are going to make it out of this period and end up being, you know, the next CEO of a trillion dollar company in 10 years? Yeah, I think this is going to be a crucible no different than, you know, what uh, Jeff Bezos faced or even a Steve Jobs to a certain extent faced in other downturns, and if you could be a good peacetime general, yeah. and you were able to understand how to motivate customers, motivate employees, build a good business during the good times, and can then also be a good wartime general of, hey, here's how we control costs, here's how we change, a, 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 still a positive message for internal external communications, but temper that message to be sensitive to the environment, and you could do both of those things incredibly, incredibly rare. You know, we saw some founders who were great at raising money and, up, and upsides. We've seen some founders who have been ruthless cost cutters and downside, but the Venn diagram overlap is very rare. But I think that's when you see those special people who will be able to manage those businesses over several cycles into the public markets and be the exceptional people that we'll talk about like the Bezos is in yeah. 10, 20 years. What, what do you think VC has learned from this period? Again, so like obviously we all know, you know, Rick's been in the business. He's, he's been in, in multiple cycles. And again, one of the things that I think is really unique about this cycle is that, you know, when we came out of the dot-com implosion 20 years ago, when we came out of the financial crisis, interest rates were at zero and they stayed really accommodative for a long time. Right now we have a Fed 
Fed meeting tomorrow and Fed funds is going to go to 4.75%, the strong likelihood it's going to be 5% in March. And whatever your estimates are for when they start coming down, they're still going to be much higher than they were at the bottom of other cycles. Will we continue to see the lessons that we just talked about, poor due diligence, right? Will we see better practices among investors in the private markets on the way out over the next couple of years? I think you're, you're already starting to see it. I mean, I think deal velocities slow down. You've seen an absence of people. You know, it was almost a daily event in the in the press to say, "Hey, this was you know Chair.com. We just minted a new unicorn yesterday," and so that's going away. Billion-dollar valuations are going away. I, we're probably net down unicorns in 2022, especially if people are being honest with themselves. And then you're seeing net down $100 million rounds. And even some of the market participants who are driving that behavior are, out, are not in the business anymore. So I think you're going to see a return to diligence, or I think, as we said almost a year ago on one of the first OK Computers, yeah. the, the revenge of diligence and the return of business models as rationality and sobriety have re-entered the ecosystem. And you know, I think that's going to be important. And I think, as you say, as interest rates, everyone expects them to continue to rise, at least getting to 5%. You all, as, as capital allocators, are going to say, hey, I, I could be in a, almost in a, and be able to drive returns in a risk-free environment. What's the risk premium I'm going to need to be able to uh, invest in the riskiest part of the curve in venture capital? So I think you're going to see less capital in the market. I think you're going to see more dollars go to people who were thoughtful and cautious and sober during the 2021 period. And you know, we've even seen a lot of people who have, have who are looking for, you know, here are people who have been there in the long term. And I originally got into venture capital in 98, so almost 25 years ago. And then people who will stay for this next cycle and the ability to understand cycles. We're not only seeing it from the capital providers, but very interestingly, we're really starting to see it from entrepreneurs who want someone like that on their board who has seen cycles and can give really good advice both in the ups and the downs. All right, so if you're an allocator and you say to yourself, you want to kind of get more into privates, you want to get more into VC, what would some of the signs be that this is bottoming out, that we're seeing the bottoming out of a cycle? Like what, what, what are we, we want, you just said that net unicorns are probably going lower. Are we gonna see consolidation? Are we gonna see some major pivots of some companies that you thought were meant to do this and they were the next thing of this, yep. the next Uber of this, you know, that sort yes. of thing. What are some of the signs I think some of these people can get a sense for that we might be two quarters away from this being uh, over this this. Period? Well, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think we're, we're probably bouncing along the bottom I think the question is going to be how long are we going to bounce along the bottom? And I think you know we're probably two to four quarters out. You know, from a macro perspective, you know, interest rate stabilization. So as you all are thinking about, you know, how am I going to deploy my capital dollars? You know, what am I going to put in different sectors? You know, what do I, therefore what's my view on interest rates? What's my view on a risk premium? How is that going? I think that's going to be the macro concern from a market concern. What you're what you're seeing, and you know, there was a big thing on secondaries, both you know, fund secondaries as, as well as individual companies that's been bouncing around the news over the last uh, month or so as, you know, folks are trying to rebalance their portfolio, especially for people who have gotten way over their skis on privates. And how do you rebalance your portfolio? So you're seeing 
all right, the market is starting to become more efficient. It's still jagged with a lot of volatility in the privates for all the obvious reasons, but you're seeing the market kind of reset there. We've already seen largely the market reset in founders' minds, and it took over a year for that to happen, but we're able to see a return to classic valuations after spending most of last year telling founders that most of 2020 and 2021 was, was fairy tale land. That was the, any benchmarks that you have in terms of capital raising, cost of capital, and maybe even some business model things are irrelevant to the way the world has worked historically and will work. So let's go back to looking at benchmarks historically over the last 20 years and taking out that period. And that'll reset valuations, reset expectations, reset everything from cost of capital to return on capital. And we're seeing that happen in, in the primary trades. And then I, I think you're, you're seeing almost a washing out, uh, we call them the tourists. People who got into venture capital or private equity or growth capital in the 2020, 2021 period um, that were in other, some kind of other business. You know, they, they, they were in real estate, but they thought they'd, they, they'd become seed investors. They were public market investors that were kind of going earlier in the cycle because you know, long, you know, in a 12-year bull market run, one of the lessons people seem to learn, though it's not true, is the earlier you go, the more money you'll make. That's true as long as the bull market continues to go, but it doesn't go on forever. So, you know, tourists from other asset classes, tourists who haven't done that or have kind of left, and I think you're seeing some of this capitulation in the secondary market saying, hey, I was a tourist, I got burned, I'm gonna leave this asset class, return to my core focus, and you're gonna see you know, multi-decade providers of capital and partners of entrepreneurs return to setting price at reasonable levels and, and having a functioning market. You know, it might take the better part of this year, but I think that you know, we're well down the path of, of all three of those things happening. All right, let's talk about dry powder. You raised two funds last year. Yes. You raised an early stage and a growth stage fund over a billion dollars. Talk to us how you're thinking about it. Like how much is the macro, it, when you think about deploying it, yes. all the things that you just kind of mentioned, the kind of inputs that, that are important to you and having the perspective of multiple cycles. How are you deploying that capital? Are you sitting on your hands a little bit? You can all go back to 2008, 2009, some of the, most innovative companies that we interact with every day on our iPhones were all founded in and around that time. So some of the kind of multi-hundred billion dollar market caps, uh, companies yep. in, the, in the public markets, you know, they were founded or, or really hit a stride during that time. How are you thinking about, I guess, the timing of the capital raise? And it's not just first mark, there's a lot of capital that was raised at the end of 2021, early 2022, and it's waiting to be deployed in the private markets here. So there is a lot of capital. We tend not to look around too much what other people people are doing, but really focus on, on us. And you know, one of our premises is taking the longest view in the room. So as we think about our investments, we were an investor in Pinterest for you know, 12, 13 years from seed stage to being a public company and coming off a lockup. You know, DraftKings, Airbnb, we were in seven or eight years. So you know, who knows what part of the cycle we're gonna exit in, but we can control entry price and we can control the mentality of how founders build the business. So we raise capital. We're very fortunate to have some great LPs, probably including some people in the audience here. So thank you. Uh, and then what, we, what we've seen is as the markets reset is that we've been able to you know, wait for our picks. And you know, we're, we're a pretty simple firm. We're, we're generally you know, small and we view ourselves as bespoke 
you know, looking at how, how we think about, look about at the market, especially the New York market. So each partner has to do two or three deals a year. We did a little bit less last year as entrepreneurs' expectations had to reset. We feel like they have reset. We're back on a normal deployment cycle. But you know, our job is to find a couple companies that we believe could be great billion dollar companies with founders we believe could lead them there a year each and do that. And I think you know, we've been excited of what we saw probably fourth quarter of last year in terms of expectations being reset. You know, there's a whole group of founders who had golden handcuffs from that time that, that have faded away as public stock prices have, have dropped. And therefore, you know, they couldn't leave Google or, or Snap or whatever it was because they leave all this option money on the table, but they really want to start a company. And now as that, as that embedded golden handcuff has disappeared, you know, they feel more free to go out and start a business and they're excited to do it. So I think this is going to be similar to 08 or 09 or when I was an entrepreneur in, 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 20, in 2000, 2001. It's a great time to start a business. There's more people who want to do it. You know, there's going to be a better way to aggregate talent as the, you know, the, you're, you're seeing um, more layoffs and less, less uh, irrational pricing on, on hiring. And, you know, and there's a sense of a sense of thrift out there in the market that people might have gone away from in the last couple of years. And uh, we think that, you know, having a culture of thrift is, is a core part of any startups, right. startups DNA. Yeah. Last one here. We had that 2008, 2009, this kind of confluence of events is mobile, social, broadband, that sort of yes. thing. What, what, what excites you guys at Firstmark right now? What do you guys see as something 10 years from now we're going to be talking about, which was really a sea change for technology? And again, I think, you know, a lot of us have been looking at this chat GPT yes. and some of these language models and, and some of these AI applications for a whole host of different industries. I'm just curious, like, what, what do you guys focus on? Because they sound like buzzwords right now, yes. but some of them are going to be the next unicorns. You know, on, on the consumer side, you know, there, there tends to be be a platform shift and, and one of the things that was interesting you know building businesses 20 25 years ago was you know the growing installed base of broadband and what, what, what was broadband going to do to enable a next generation of applications via the internet and then you know in that downturn was also the confluence of the iPhone what does a smartphone by having a computer in your pocket enable you to do and that ushered in a whole next generation of companies we haven't seen a real platform transition or something that we've, we've seen great disruption on the consumer side but what we have seen is vertical very very large verticals being disrupted, which are, which is fascinating. So, on the consumer side, I'm going to say, you know, healthcare, biggest part of our GDP, uh, has not been disrupted digitally yet. But we believe that um, a whole bunch, whole areas of healthcare are going to be disrupted by having a more digital-first, more bespoke experience uh, with companies like Roman Health that are that are leading the way of how to create a higher quality, more personalized, more value focused healthcare by having a doctor in your pocket. On the, flip, on the other side, on the enterprise side, I think you're right. The, the AI is really something to be excited about. You know, they're horizontal platforms of, you know, being able to do workflow, being able to have computers process things. There's vertical platforms like ChatGPT or, or Lenza that could do everything from, you know, turn you into a space superhero from a selfie to, you know, write a term paper for you if you're in the seventh grade. I think that, that that's the toy, you know, element of it. 
but we're seeing things, generative AI, it's doing synthetic media creation. We're seeing elements even in, in verticals, you know, like healthcare of scanning bodies to be able to understand, you know, what happens in terms of cancer growth or even ca uh, cardiac calcium within within your heart. Uh, so that this AI, both horizontally and vertically, I think is something that we're probably underappreciating today. Although it, it is getting uh, too much, maybe almost too much buzz now but something that will be very, very large. All right, so that's a great question. I mean, does that make you a little nervous? Like, so we just went through this period again. We've been talking about due diligence now. You and I have been talking about it on CNBC and on our pod and, and in venues like this for a while. And, and everyone knew that it was getting kind of lazy. It was that sort of environment over the last yeah. few years. You know, I think a lot of what just happened with this whole FTX situation was really kind of the explanation point on, on yep. the thing. But then you see a headline and you just said you thought that like some of these, um, you know, language model, like some of the stuff is getting yeah. a lot of hype. You know, I just saw a headline the other day that a company, I can't speak to it. I don't know who the founders are, but the headline was character, two ex-Google guys who are working on a machine yes. learning thing are, are looking to raise $250 million at a billion dollar valuation for a company they just started. So I'm yep. my, my, and like, how can it be that, and I'm not saying these guys may be the, may be the next Google for all I know, but yeah. what I'm saying is, how can it be that, that that much capital can be thrown at something that we just don't know about yet? Well, I mean, we, we talked on a broad basis of these macro bubbles and bubbles bursting, and that there's always small bubbles bursting. Yeah. And there's always, there's always things that are overly inflated, overly hyped. I think, you know, tech on the whole, especially Silicon Valley, has their own echo chamber and bubble factor. Uh, I th so I think generative AI might be might be having its moment for better or worse now, uh, but I think the why diligence matters is because you know you're, we're not trying to play a sector bet on AI and we're AI thematic. It's you know hey there's AI which which is something really interesting and something that might be transformative, but we really like this AI company who's able to detect cancer. This AI company who's able to process fields and formats at 1% at at of the cost of, of a human being. There's AI out there doing real jobs that have real customers. Those customers are diligenceable. They're driving real ROI. They're sharing that ROI. And if you could find, and, they, and the team's great, so if you could find those entrepreneurs, you could diligence that model, you're able to, you're able to pick your, yeah. your, your individual companies in, in what might be a bubble. Yeah, what, what might be a bubble? Um, again, uh, one last thing, I guess, uh, we'll just focus on this, is that you know, you being in New York, we started this conversation close to Wall Street, close yes. to, you know, when you think about, again, at some point, you know, we've seen the US dollar come in, we've seen interest rates, at least the 10-year US Treasury come in, we've seen inflation inputs come in, we've seen high-yield credit kind of hold up, you know? Um, a lot of measures that I would look at and say, you know, is the equity market, at least public, is it safe to get back in the water, they're at least kind of telling you in, in, a, in a relatively stable macro environment that we're probably not that far away, okay? Yes. So I'm curious, um, you know, for you, we just talked about you have this capital, you have this dry powder. Um, what are some signs that you might take from the public markets that would give you greater confidence in deploying this capital sooner than later? Probably the number one sign is the reopening of the IPO market. So, um, you know, nothing gives you more confidence than deploy capital than having proof that your prior capital you deployed was smart. Um, and therefore, you know, a reopening of an IPO market 
We, we probably have a dozen companies that you know are hoping to go public in the next 18 to 24 months, assuming the market opens around Labor Day, which is conventional wisdom at this point. But reopen and having a healthy IPO market after what's been, I think, the second worst IPO market ever over the last uh, 15 months. Then the second piece would be, you know, what is what does a reinflation or even just a normalization of the market mean for M&A? So you're seeing some of this, some M&A deals get done, but uh, in general, you know, the the large companies who are going to be the buyers in this situation have said, hey, we just laid off a whole lot of people. Um, our, our investors are telling us we should be risk off. You know, how, you know, how are we going to buy a company for a billion dollars if you know we just laid off a whole bunch of people or risk off? Should we change that up? Um, so you know, a stabilization of the market will, will kind of start to reopen the M&A markets. A long-term stabilization will open the uh, IPO markets, and therefore there'll be a much healthier movement of capital in and out of, of venture funds in the privates. All right, well, cool. Our time is up here. We really appreciate you guys being here. Rick Heitzman, First Mark Capital, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot to Rick Heitzman. Stick around for my conversation with Chamath Palihapitiya. Thank you guys for being here. It's been a great day of content, and thank Chamath here. I've had the fortunate opportunity to interview Chamath on many occasions. We've had a lot of private conversations over the course of the last, I think, five years or so. It's been crazy time for investors, for entrepreneurs, you know, you as a former operator, I think you have a lot of opinions how businesses should be built and operated and all that sort of stuff. But then as an investor, you've had some crazy returns too, right? Um, So thank you for being here to this audience here. And, um, you know, speaking to this audience, I think is really important, right? Because it's like, allocators, you got all that dough, and then you got to find the right people <laughs> to invest it. So, um, Chamath, welcome. Thank, Thank you, you so much, man. Thanks, Dan. Let's talk about the macro. You know, I, I feel like there are very few people that I know, so I've been doing CBC for a long time. I've been an investor myself. I'm just kind of the sole operator now, but Guy and I, who was just up here, we run a little bit of a media company here. You know, there's very few people that I come across that have, I don't know, man, the knowledge of both the public and the private markets, the way you do, the finger on the pulse, you know, you've had some videos, some interviews on CNBC with our friend Scott Wapner that have gone absolutely viral. Talking about you know public markets. Talk to us. What's going on right now? Because it feels like we are in a little bit of a exuberant period in the public markets. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're dealing with two things. One is just that if you really think about it, if if I had said 13 months ago that we would be sitting here today and the Fed would have hiked you know 500 basis points in nine months plus or minus, you would have thought it was crazy. So we're sort of like coming into this phase of sobriety, trying to figure out how do we all do our jobs differently and what does it mean for the investments that we've already put in the ground? And for me personally, I think it really, the setup is that it amplifies tail risk. And so right now I'm sort of somewhat quite cautious because I think there's a left tail risk and I think Mike Wilson is here, but you know, if you listen to Mike, who's been really right so far, you know, the risk is that the S&P earnings are sort of with a one handle, 180, 185, and all of a sudden the S&P is, you know, 3,200, 3,300. But then there's this right tail risk, which is that the Fed becomes dovish, everybody capitulates because it looks like things are slowing down, and now all of a sudden, though, you will have to deal with terminal rates that are going to be 4 to 5% on a more consistent basis because if he lets off the gas now, then inflation kind of sticks around. So both roads 
lead to repriced assets just in very different path dependency. And those risks to me are a little heightened. And so I've tried to kind of be quite conservative and just you know, be down the fairway. One who has capital invest can be conservative if they want when you look at where the two-year treasury note is right yeah. now, right? And so I, I, I think it's kind of interesting for the first time in a long time, there is an alternative to equities, for instance. And so talk to me a little bit about that barbell because I think the biggest risk right now is not that the market or investors come around to the fact that maybe Mike Wilson's right and maybe that S&P earnings are gonna be down 10% this year to $180 and therefore there needs to be a lower S&P 500. I think the risk is that for whatever reason, we just reignite the risk asset bubble right here because if we don't learn anything from the period that we were just in, and you've written about this, we're gonna hit this substack that you wrote last week here. If we don't have a reset, it just sets us up for the same sort of mistakes that we make again and again. There's a lot to learn when you look at the past, which is that a high rate environment, at least in the area in which I operate, which is technology businesses, we've actually counterintuitively built better businesses during periods of high rates. And the reason is because there are fewer allocators that come to our part of the market because you can find better risk-free rates, as you said, the two-year, you know, even down to T-bills and repo, quite honestly. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is that in the absence of this surfeit of capital, it forces each individual company to frankly just be better managed because there's less money. And so we become, as an ecosystem, more intolerant of excess. And all of that just creates better-run businesses. And so we haven't had that cycle for probably 14 or 15 years. And so we desperately need it, because if you look inside a lot of technology companies, they're unfortunately rotting from the inside out, right? They've had a period where they've been able to raise successive amounts of capital to fund a valuation creep that frankly won't translate into what the actual money is you're gonna get back. In our industry, you know, there's a couple of dirty little secrets or like the dirty soft underbelly. One of them is that only 10% of all of the firms in our asset class actually generate real returns, 10%, which means 90% are basically floundering around burning money. The other thing is, is that we have always consistently generated a high single digit DPI, so like 1.7x is like the 30 year average on distributions. Yet we are the worst defender when it comes to showing people, like you guys, paper markups or TVPI. So there is this dance that, that this industry has been able to play because rates have been at zero. As investors, the asset class I think is very challenged in order to generate real returns now. The companies that we funded have as a result of all this excess capital been more poorly run than otherwise. And so we need to course correct. So we need these rates to be sustained for you know, five, six, seven years, frankly, hopefully, in order to really flush it through the system. What did you see, you know, back in 2018, it was Fed Chair Powell's first year there, and he started raising interest rates right off that zero interest rate bound that had been there since the financial crisis. And they were kind of, I think they used the term on autopilot raising like 25 basis point every other meeting. They got to, I think, three and a quarter percent. And remember what happened in Q4 of 2018, yeah. the S&P 500 went down 20% in a straight line and then they pivoted, okay? Exactly. And I think, so talk to me about like, what were you seeing in the private markets then and how did that rate increase in the pace of which was much steadier, you know what I mean? 
mean, it was not the, 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 the way that they went up this year. I'm like, what, what were the impacts on, on venture back then? There was none. And the reason is that at, in that time, the narrative was that China was turning over. And so people needed to reestablish some amount of baseline global growth. And so they thought if China turns over and the US now all of a sudden raises too much, we're gonna be in a lot of headwinds. And so Powell capitulated, but it turned out that China actually faded that perceived theoretical recession risk. And so all of a sudden the floodgates opened because rates were low here. You couldn't find any real growth anywhere. And we were at that period of the market where so many people had been sitting on the sidelines and effectively on the outside looking in, that they ran into the riskiest assets. Mm -hmm. So, you know, technology ripped, crypto ripped, SPACs ripped. Everything that was on the far edges of the risk curve were really well bid to a point that now looking back clearly was unsustainable. But it's explainable in the sense that we gave folks no real other recourse because they were in the eighth or ninth year of no returns anywhere else. Yeah. Do you, do you think as investors, we just kept on looking for new things to invest in? So you just mentioned SPACs. Obviously, you were a prominent player in that. And you know, when I first met you, it's not like you were some Johnny come lately. I mean, you were bringing a company, SPAC, Virgin Galactic, right, in 2017. And so um, talk to me a little bit about that because there was also, obviously, crypto. There was, you know, Snap went public in 2017. It was wildly unprofitable then, it's still unprofitable now, all these years later. What's the post-mortem on some of these things? And obviously crypto had this huge retail move um, you know, that started, obviously it crashed in 2018, but started to reflate in, in 2020. What, what, what's your like look back on, on yeah. those risk assets right now and, and what survives out of that? In our history from founding, we've had these things where we've had these major themes that we've always invested in, which is early stage venture, largely in healthcare and software and deep tech. And so that's been a consistent theme and recently energy transition. That's been our bread and butter. But every few years, it, it has turned out that we sometimes go a little off-piste. And you know, in the early you know, 2011, I went off-piste and I made a huge bet in Bitcoin when it was 80 bucks a coin. It just seemed like just an unbelievably massive risk reward. We did the same thing in the mid-2000s. We did it in SaaS. We did it in deep tech. And SPACs, you know, we stumbled into this thing because we wanted to raise money for a bunch of our companies that were extremely capital intensive. And we demonstrated something that in a moment just caught a lot of wind. So yeah, as you mentioned, you know, we did six of them. I think there were 650 of them just in 2021. So we're, you know, about 1% of the market. I think we bought good companies well. I think we sold well, quite honestly. But it's one of these things where it was fueled by a moment in time of just enormous excess liquidity. And now I think we're sort of back to basics. So for us as an institution, we're kind of back to early stage venture. Who knows, we may go off piece at some point to really try to ton it. That's our job as investors, right? Is like, we allocate risk well, we maintain top quartile returns, but when there's a window, you know, I have, you know, I'm the largest LP in my fund. So when there's a window, I go for it. And that was a moment where we tried to go for it. So as the largest LP in, in social, I mean, when you think about this refocus on early stage, talk to me about, is it, is it just the environment? Is it about some things that you've learned over the last few years? Is it where you think that you can have the most impact on these companies? And then to your point, if things get back rolling again in a couple of years, maybe that's when the, when the growth investing comes back a little bit. 
Yeah, I think the problem with growth investing, just to give you some anecdotal data, like at the end of last year, I looked at six, seven converts. And these were all extremely well-known companies that all of you would know on a first-name basis. And they all came to me trying to raise convert. And I said, well, here's the real market clearing price of these companies, and none of them took my money. And instead, they did a convert to basically deflect and kick the can down the road on valuation. So we're at that point in the market where all the boards of these private companies refuse to budge on valuation. And the reason is because it impacts meaningfully their TVPIs that they've given to LPs. And so it's a very difficult part of the private markets right now to invest in because you will not be allowed to do true price discovery because nobody wants to take the real hits. The best companies will do it. I mean, I think you saw today that Stripe may take a 50% down round. That's probably the best technology company in Silicon Valley proper being built right now. So they'll do it. Klarna did it. In fact, it's so interesting that it's all, you know, the through line there is Sequoia, which is an extremely disciplined and incredible organization. So they're able to enforce that discipline. But other companies, other venture funds, they don't want to look at the TVPI decay. And so it's uninvestable, quite honestly. On the other end, early stage venture has always been where the real gross dollar profits are made. And if you overlay that with a rising rate environment and you regress that back 30 or 40 years, in fact, we did it looking back 60 years, the most incredible opportunities to make money are actually when rates are rising in early stage venture. That's just the historical artifact if you look at public companies in size. So you know, we said very explicitly, okay, no more growth. The default answer right now is going to be no. We're not going to touch it. But we're going to continue to sort of over-index into early stage and do as many good deals as we can see and you know, let the chips fall where they may. If you just think about public markets, for instance, you know, some of these high valuation names without profits, they started correcting you know, early 2021, right? So by the time that the NASDAQ topped out in late 2021, the S&P topped out the first week of January in 2022, yeah. there, were, there, there were bear markets all over the place, right? Yeah. And so because a lot of people you know, were looking at the indices, they were masks, you know, some of the devastation, crypto had already turned over. What do you think some of the signs of the bottom in, in private tech will be? Because to your point, if you're seeing some of the leadership, the stripes, take these big hits, there's gotta be some devastation to happen on, under much smaller names that are out there at big valuations. I think when limited partners really become disciplined about keeping people honest about distributions. Because in a moment like this, when your asset allocation goes upside down, the most important thing are who can generate DPI? Who actually gets money back into your pocket? Forget paper markups, because they're kind of not really worth the paper that they're printed on. Where are the distributions so that my, my actual assets can be more right-sized? They are the ones that I think start this trend of bottoming. Because what will happen is you'll go to the organizations that have had the most consistent TVPIs with the most inconsistent DPIs and say, I can't work with you anymore. Because this is now just money bad. And when those folks leave the market, those companies now become more prone to get repriced accurately because that set of GPs will say, I need to return money. Mm -hmm. And that's where guys like us can step in with clean balance sheets and lots of money to go and say, okay, let's go and reprice these. I honestly think that's like three years away. Yeah. I thought it was gonna be three quarters away. 
You know, at first when we were thinking about like how much capital are we really going to be allocating over this next period, we cut it by two thirds mm -hmm. because we just didn't see the opportunities in the late stage anymore. But you're excited about some stuff. You tweeted this the other day, two most important drivers of the next decade, the marginal cost of energy and the marginal cost of compute will both go to zero. And you said over the next decade. So this is at early stage, you're looking for opportunities to invest in and around these themes. Talk to us a little bit about that. These are multi-trillion dollar shifts in how the information economy and, and as a result, the economy itself is gonna work. You know, right now, today, you can generate, using solar and wind, energy that's effectively approaching zero. Mm -hmm. And it's cheaper than that gas. And not, it's not just at the residential level, but it's also at the baseload power generation level. And so as a totality, you have the ability for 100 million US homeowners to effectively displace 1,700 utilities and all of that monopolistic behavior and regulatory capture. And so if all of a sudden you have free abundant energy that you can collect from the sky and store in your garage and direct anywhere you want, you all of a sudden have the ability to solve problems via brute force that before you couldn't because they were boundaries of energy. Separately, we have found a way to transition away Moore's law away from CPUs into these application-specific chipsets now that operate in a realm of machine learning and AI. And the cost of that is effectively going to zero because these reference designs now are so well understood. The software is so powerful now. And when you multiply these two things together, if you wanted to brute force, reverse engineer every single theoretical protein that binds to every other protein in your body, what was a multi-billion dollar compute and energy problem is now effectively a few tens of millions of dollars. If you actually wanted an infrastructure that could actually detect in real time how to give true autonomous self-driving, make extremely complicated decisions, and stop on a dime, those were compute problems that you can now basically make render costless. And so when those two things come together, it's one of these really transformational moments in our society where you can go after some very big problems that we didn't think were tractable before. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very excited about that intersection and finding companies that play on those themes. How, how does um, this sort of economic, I was gonna say Cold War with China, but it seems pretty hot. How, how does that affect some of the ways you think about these transformative technologies? Because again, you know, our government is banning advanced you know, technology sales to China. It just seems like we're gonna be in this bipolar tech world. And, it's great and, for America. Does it? Okay, I wanna it's hear. It's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable boon for America. And it's an unbelievable boon for America's technology sector. Yet, you know, the, the thing is, when you look inside of China, they are extremely good at process engineering. They're also extremely good at additive manufacturing. You know, they're extremely great in things like specialty chemicals. But all of those things, when you think about the precursors, come from American, European, Australian companies that now have a huge incentive to diversify that supply chain away from China. That benefits American companies in a massive way. And so China's response is muted. So for example, we said we are going to slow down the flow of extremely advanced semiconductor manufacturing equipment into China. China's response said we are not going to allow you guys to get the input components to uh, certain silicon wafers that are used in PV cells. I mean, if you had to rank these things, no offense, but we can make solar cells. <laughs> The equipment that you need to get to two nanometer scale in chip design comes from the Dutch, the Germans, and the Americans. And so it's a really interesting moment where the game theory optimal view is that 
China's cost advantages actually get moved over, mm -hmm. right? So the margin decay in China gets replaced by margin expansion in these businesses here, but now allow them to operate in parity. So it's a really unique moment. Do, do some of these geopolitical kind of issues, maybe call them disconnects, do they present unusual opportunities for somebody who's doing early stage investing? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one thing that I can't totally talk about, but kind of can talk about, but like, you know, there's an extremely large government that we partnered with to create a, a specialty chemical that's used in the battery supply chain. And this is a, you know, 4951 joint venture between us and them where you know, they're giving us discounted pricing, we're building the entire supply chain, it benefits from the BIL and the IRA and the CHIPS Act in the United States. That deal would not have been possible three or four years ago. Mm. A, that an organization like ours would partner with the government. B, that that deal would be reliable. And these are the kinds of opportunities now that have been unleashed because people want to diversify away from the Chinese supply chain. I think China will do well, I think that they have an incredibly uh, vibrant internal ecosystem. But wherever sort of the G7 can put pressure on the criticality of these supply chains and diversify and force them through subsidies or other things to just be North America or you know, a different set of allies, it's going to create a lot of economic tailwinds for those people that play in that. I mean, this seems like everyone in this room is, you know, you've heard of this chat, GPT, and I know this is stuff that interests you, and you're probably the sort of guy who's been on top of this stuff for years, and it just kind of bubbles up for a lot of people like us. It seems like I haven't seen a technology that's kind of captivated the public, you know, in, in a while. Yeah. Talk to us a little about these large language models. I mean, you just talked a little bit about how transformative AI is going to be in all these different industries. What about it from an investment standpoint? Because you and I were just chatting about this. You know, I saw a headline, a company, I've never heard of them, two guys leave Google, chapter, or, you know, chapter.ai, and they're looking to raise $250 million at a billion dollar valuation, you know, maybe. What have we learned here? Because that seems like a big round for something that is probably a handful of engineers kind of banging away at a, at a chat bot right now. You know, when I was at Facebook, my team and I were probably the first folks that really commercialized machine learning in the wild. You know, when our first versions of Newsfeed and some other technologies that you guys probably interact with every day essentially was about using machines to guess and to guess better and better over time. So. That's basically what this is just on steroids. And you know, what ChatGPT shows you is just the amazing value in allowing computers to assist you in doing work. It's like a you know, calculator replacing the abacus, replacing a pen and paper. What's important though is this Buffett quote, a friend of mine told me this yesterday, which I loved. He told this story about refrigeration and the story he tells is that the people and the person that invented refrigeration made some money, but most of the money was made by Coca-Cola who used refrigeration to build an empire. And I view these large language models as refrigeration. Will there be some money made in it? I think so. But the Coca-Cola has yet to be built. And those are the companies that are really gonna monetize it. And in order to monetize it well, here's a basic thing about machine learning that's worth knowing, which is if you take 1,000 of the same inputs and give it to Facebook and Microsoft and Google and Amazon, they'll all come up with the same machine learning model. But if you have one extra thing, one little ingredient that all of those other companies don't have, your output can be markedly different. Mm -hmm. It's like giving two great chefs three ingredients, but you give the third chef one extra one. That person has the ability to do something very special. 
So right now we are in the world where everybody is crawling the open web. We're going to move to a world where as everybody gets sophisticated enough, where when refrigeration is widely available, somebody's going to say, you know what, this site, I'm not going to allow anybody else to access. It's only me, only for my models. And those models will become better. And so we have to let that play out a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be a little bit of a really interesting arms race. So the, the next wave of M&A, for example, could be companies like Google and Microsoft and Facebook looking at these companies saying, can they be viable inputs to my large language models or to my other machine learning and AI models? So you could see M&A activity that drives that differentiation before anything else. So lots of really, so then as a result for guys like us, early stage investors, we may want to invest in companies that have zero viable public market potential whatsoever, but is building a data repository that's so unique that we know that it will feed one of these bigger companies and their efforts in AI. And that could very well justify making an investment that we would otherwise not make today, knowing what we know. And, and on that front, I mean, so regulatory really quickly, because we only have a couple minutes here. I mean, you know, it, you know 10 years ago, uh, Facebook would just buy the next thing, right? They'd pay a billion dollars. You know, the fact that Microsoft made a billion dollar investment in OpenAI, you know, in a different regulatory environment, they might have just bought it. They couldn't buy OpenAI. But you know, does this also excite you about early stage tech investing in this environment? Does the regulatory environment actually help your cause to let some of these companies bubble up a bit further than they might if they were just kind of taken over by the incumbents? Yeah, I mean, I think the incumbents are going to have to veer into adjacent M&A that it's non-obvious, mm -hmm. that will pass regulatory muster. And then separately, it'll allow people who build the Coca-Colas of the world who use refrigeration properly to actually emerge with a lot less threat where the cross-bundling and the cross-selling and upselling that the big tech companies use to basically eliminate a lot of competition um, will be very difficult. I mean, classic example, look at the emergence of Reels and what Reels has done, and maybe it's not as obvious to everybody here, to the enterprise value of TikTok. I mean, I think we've all thought that ByteDance was going to be a two or $300 billion company. There's all this you know, value tied up in it. All these folks have these big stakes in it. But if you look at the growth of Reels, it's probably had the enterprise value of TikTok before the regulatory stuff has happened. So that kind of stuff, I think, allows when all the big folks are fighting amongst each other, yeah. it allows the little folks to kind of hit the seam and actually build something. Yeah. All right, before we get out of here, a lot of you guys are probably all in podcast fans. You know that he has uh, you know, the, the tendency for a little hot take. Give me something, man. I'm going on Fast Money in an hour here. What, what do you got? What, what's, what's a hot take to leave this audience with? Wow, what's a hot take? Well, you know, my, 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 my most interesting thing right now is I have looked at, and Mike Wilson inspired me to do this. I basically went back and I looked at Google's P&L. And just for you know, shits and giggles, I took all the TAC, the traffic acquisition costs that they pay, and I put it back into COGS and I capitalized it. And I'm like, what's the true PE if you did that? And then I did the same thing for Facebook. Because you, know, you hear this constant thing, which is like, oh, this thing trades at 20 times, it's so cheap. Oh, Facebook trades at you know, eight times, it's so cheap. And it turns out Facebook trades at 19 times and Google would trade at 31 times. And then all of a sudden it's not so cheap. So there is a hot take. There you go. Which is when you look at software businesses and you actually capitalize some of these costs and look at true EBITDA. True EBITDA. Mm -hmm. They're not nearly as interesting on a implied yield basis as others. You know, you sound like a good friend of mine, Jim Chanos, just so you know. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. All right. Listen, on that note, thank you guys all for being here. Chama, thank you for thank being you. here. It was great, man. Thank you so much.
If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.